Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. What is up, plant people? Welcome back to the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives, careers, and general awesomeness of some very cool plant people to figure out why they do what they do and what keeps them coming back for more. I'm Vikram Baliga, your host and your humble guide in this journey through the plant sciences. And as always, y'all, I'm so excited to be with you today. So my guest today is a biologist, an evolutionary biologist, a curator of a herbarium here at Texas Tech University, and uh, a moss enthusiast. Did you know that was a thing? I, I actually did kind of know it was a thing. And Dr. Matt Johnson is one of my very favorite moss enthusiasts. He teaches the biology of plants, other biology classes. He studies genetics and plant history and evolutionary biology and evolutionary history. And he is just genuinely one of the nicest people I know, just a genuinely smart and delightful human being. So Matt and I both work at Texas Tech University together, and until recently, we hadn't met. We were Twitter friends and all that, and one day I went over to check out the herbarium, and it was super cool, and he gave me a tour, and we talked about him being on the show. So I'm so excited that he got to come in and talk to me today, uh, or for today's episode. We didn't talk today. That's not how this works. This is the mad. There's magic. There's things that happen behind the scenes. But yeah, that's all I got. Thanks for listening. You're going to love this episode. So get ready for episode 81 of Planthropology with my friend, Dr. Matt Johnson. This is one of the rare ones that I get to record in person these days. And uh, I've got Matt Johnson in my office, who is the director of the E.L. Reed Herbarium at Texas Tech University and does all kinds of other cool things. Uh, Matt, how are you today? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's exciting. We've kind of talked about this for a little bit, and I'm glad we get to connect finally. So, um, gosh, it seems like you do a lot of things. Yeah, so uh, my background uh, is actually in evolutionary biology, uh, starting at uh, Duke in North Carolina, uh, did both my undergrad and my PhD there, and then kind of did a little zigzag around the country to Chicago, worked at the Chicago Botanic Garden um, on the Moss Tree of Life and putting that together, and then started here in 2017, where I, I guess I kind of wear two hats. I've got one as a professor with a research lab on genetics and genomics and phylogeny, and then also as director of the herbarium, um, which has about 30,000 plants up on the roof of the biology building. Nobody really knows about until we bring them up there. Yeah, so I uh, I got to see it not too long ago, and I did not know it was there either. <laughs> you know, I've been I've been a, a around tech for a while, and I've been in this position for quite a while, and um, we kind of connected on Twitter, <laughs> which is fu- it's funny how that works because we're at the same university and we're you know maybe a half a mile from each other. I don't know; it, it feels longer when you're walking there, but. Um, and it, like it took a tweet about something or the other to get us connected one time. But yeah, I noticed that uh, you had the location on on your tweet, so it was like Lubbock. I'm like, wait a minute, hang on, <laughs> this guy is here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, because we're in you know different colleges, I'm in the arts and sciences, and you're in the, the ag school. Um, but I am aware of you know plant and soil science department that you've got here. Uh, we have the class uh, biology of plants. It's a mm-hmm. non non majors class that I teach. 
uh, in a rotation and plant soil science majors are required to take it. So yeah. we get a number of them coming in and it's really nice because it brings a balance to the often pre-med majors of biology. Right. Uh, there's people who's interested in, in research as well, but uh, folks interested in plants are often coming from other departments at a big university like this. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's an important point. I think that there is maybe, a, I, I don't know. It's an interesting thing because it's a lot of universities. It's like, oh, you should know this person. I'm like there are 40,000 people. Like, you know, right, right, don't, right. It, you can't meet everyone for sure. But um, so going back to your background a little bit, what got you interested in what well, moss or plants or everything and anything in between? Yeah, so I was pretty interested in, in science growing up. I was a little bit of the oddball in the family that's mostly English and literature. Hmm. Um, both of my parents are teachers, um, but making a really big interest into reading popular science books in high school, really want to be a biology major. The pre-med thing for me lasted about five seconds, so <laughs> two two classes of organic chemistry, but um, oh. right. Yeah. The, the transition to doing research really happened as an undergraduate, especially during the summer. Um, National Science Foundation has this really great research experience for undergraduates program that I participated in. Um, and then the following year, uh, at, as a rising senior, I worked in a herbarium and they gave me the opportunity to go out and do a field trip. Okay. Uh, and it was with a graduate student, another herbarium assistant and a botanist who had just gotten his PhD we traveled all around the, uh, basically the whole coast of, uh, Atlanta coastal plain of North America and, uh, collecting peat moss. Hmm. And it was during that field trip that it really hit me how to connect classes to what I was seeing out in nature. You know, for example, you learn in class that species have to stay separate because in order they have to stay physically separate in order to remain different species. And you learn about that in class and then you're out in nature and you see that there are two species of peat moss that are literally touching but they're not, they're still separate species. They're not interbreeding. Um, they're still staying pretty separate from each other. Yeah. And that is wild. And it was actually being out in nature, really connecting to those sort of classroom studies. And that's, that's super important because I think we, um, it's funny because I think the answer that we give people in biology in general or in the, you know, life sciences is the answer to everything is it depends. Right, right. There's we we have very few like hard and fast rules about anything, but then in practice, a lot of times we treat some of the, the things that we deal with like hard and fast rules. So I think that that experience of maybe finding some of those interesting lines between them uh, and where those lines are a little bit blurred is actually really important from a biological standpoint. Yeah, yeah. I think being out in nature really helps with biology, especially, um, and I happens to me all the time, especially as I developed into more of the computational side of biology. Biology is becoming a very computational science. It's important to have these skills, but then it's not until I'm back out in nature. I'm like, Oh yeah. How did, why is this plant here? <laughs> why isn't it over there? Uh, how are these two species coexisting? You know, these are, that's what drives the questions I think is just this curiosity about the world for sure. Oh, a hundred percent. So that uh, kind of what you were talking about just now leads me to two things that I want to discuss and, and I'm going to put you on the spot <laughs> as a biologist. Um, 
are species a real thing? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to just dive into the controversy, um, what, nine minutes into this podcast. <laughs> um, I've had some interesting reflections on this the last couple of years. I, I, I know that in a classes, often it's taught that species are these reproductively isolated populations and blah, 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 textbook definition. Mm-hmm. Glosses over the fact that there's a thousand species concepts that people have come up with. Right. Um, I think about, um, you know, coming up with different, you know, connectors for uh, devices and each one is different. Someone's like, Oh, this is the, this is the new one that's going to replace all of them. And now there's just one more. (laughs) And you got to keep that drawer full of. Yeah. Yeah. So a little while ago I I made the observation on Twitter that, that species concepts are like that is a hot dog, a sandwich of biology. And the, (laughs) the debate that surrounds it can get quite philosophical and also quite dumb and both dumb and philosophical at the same time. Um, I had one discussion in a class that, that involved somebody quoting, you know, uh, something the the uh, Greek urn, the poem, John Keats, Ode to a Grecian urn, mm-hmm. um, truth is beauty and beauty is truth. And, and so it gets real interesting. Um, I think that species are hypotheses. Huh. And I think that a lot of times we get weighed down by the practicalities of defining a species which could be scientific. Is it, does it look different from another species? Is it mating with something from another species? And then a really practical thing is we have this law that's the endangered species act. Right. And so we need to, in our laws have some protection and conservation of that one taxonomic group. It's not the invasive, it's not the endangered variety act and it's not the endangered genus Hmm. act. Well, there's a practical implication for this, and that's what I point out when students roll their eyes at me when I ask them that same question, yeah. is that you really need to think about this from a variety of angles. So as a hypothesis, let's test if they're, if they're different using computational models, like the leaves of this species fundamentally different from the leaves of that species. Are they flowering at the same time? You got to look out in nature and uh, do the test to, to figure out if they're they're separate or not. Um, and then from my, uh, especially my research in phylogenetics, looking for the uh, common ancestors of species that in some groups might be the last thing that happens when two species come from one species. And in other groups, it might be the first thing that happens. So it's really a matter of not applying a universal rule to everything, but that there are a couple of interesting patterns and putting them together in the order that apparently matters for Hmm. that group of plants. That's really a great answer. I mean, (laughs) I, I, you know, and and it's something that I think it's, it's funny because scientists like to fight about stuff. Like, I think it's something that we really, I don't know if it's, we actually like it, but it's something we seem to be really good at Mm -hmm. is to split hairs about things. And I think what you're talking about is a good example of that. Cause it's like, we take this and we're going to debate it to death and all these things when Ultimately, so much of it is is down to communicating with each other well right. through these concepts right. and communicating clearly. Right. Like if I say a species to someone, like at least I'm understood by what I'm saying. And the audience is important too. You know, I mentioned the Endangered Species Act, but then if there are people who are stewards of a piece of land that might have one of those species, 
it matters differently whether that species is defined based on its DNA molecules and their history, hmm. which you can't do yet. Maybe soon, but not yet. Sure. Out in the field, if you're the you know uh, parks manager trying to figure out if your piece of land needs um, to get some extra pot of money to help you protect hmm. the species, or you just really need to know whether the leaves are different so that you can figure out, like, I've got two species on this land or one species on this land. And so to that extent, they are real to us uh, as units of things that we should protect. Maybe they are not super special in their taxonomic rank. Sure. Um, but there are uh, some cases where it seems pretty clear that keeping them from breeding with each other is an important aspect yeah. of keeping species separate. And then of course, except, you know, then the, you just turn to the Oaks and everything breaks down. <laughs> yeah. Oaks don't play by the rules. They right. just do whatever they want. Yeah. They all hybridize with each other. Yep. Yeah. yeah and it's funny cause you'll see an Oak and you're like, what is this? I'm like nobody, nobody, it's impossible yeah. to know. No. It's just whatever. No, it's yeah. It is a red Oak ish. <laughs> it is red Oak adjacent. Right. Um, no, that's really interesting. Cause that's, that is a, a common debate. And I know it's some that it's one that a lot of the listeners probably have heard in some context, whether on Twitter or in a class or something. And, and again, I think it's, it's important that we be understood, but it's also important that we be accurate, you know, in the things that we say. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing you talked about is while you were going in and collecting, you talked about peat moss, right? Can you give us just a quick primer on peat moss? What is peat moss? Sure. Well, peat moss is a moss, which is actually interesting because there are a wide variety of things that are called moss that are not at all moss. Um, But mosses are plants. Um, They're land plants. And they diverged uh, in an evolutionary way from the vascular plants about 400 million years ago. Mm -hmm. And along that path that's been unique to the mosses, one group um, that's pretty special is the peat mosses. That's the genus Sphagnum. And the peat mosses are really special because they can engineer their own ecosystem. Hmm. Um, they are um, actively preventing their own decomposition. And so the definition of peat being growth rate exceeds decomposition rate the sphagnum peat mosses are releasing acids into the water. They also have antibacterial properties that prevent their own decomposition. And so much in the same way that um, a beaver pond was created by a beaver, Hmm. a peatland was created by peat moss. Huh. Hey, that's so fascinating to me because I talk about peat a lot and, and sphagnum and we actually just recently talked about it um, in my class as we were talking about soil amendments and, and the things like that. And, I've never heard it put that way. And that's such an interesting thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so I should say that there are other things that form peat. There's grasses that form peat. That's just sort of the general definition of peat as an ecosystem type mm. is that there's more growth than there is decomposition. Okay. There are also other peat mosses um, that generally are found in, in slightly different peatlands, especially in the Northern sort of boreal regions. Mm -hmm. These are mosses that are in a different class. Um, so they are as different from sphagnum peat mosses as, uh, as, a an oak and a, um, and a pine. Interesting. And, uh, probably even more so from a time standpoint, but different, different class from a, uh, categorization. Yeah. Huh. So peat is, it has been, um, a common 
soil amendment or, right. or a media amendment. So when we grow in the greenhouse, you know, most of our mixes have some amount of peat. Right. And in the industry, you know, there's two camps. Like there are, again, people like to argue. Uh, in the industry, in the horticultural science, there's a big uh, group that I probably belong to that thinks we need to completely move away from harvesting peat for this purpose of adding it to soil and things like that. Because these are, you know, at least in my probably crude understanding, very delicate ecosystems that, you know, over time as we cut them and break them down, it takes a long time for them to recover. And there's people that are like, nah, cut the peat, put it in the thing, whatever. Where do you, where do you fall? Okay. I keep putting you on the spot. I almost (laughs) feel bad about this. Uh, Almost. Um, Like, is that, is that a real concern? Is that something we should really be kind of backing away from and finding other methods for? I think it would be good in the same way that other sustainable practices are going to help us prolong the major disasters associated with, with global warming. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, carbon is a very important aspect of, of that uh, changing climate. And there is a tremendous amount of carbon locked up in sphagnum peat mosses. Okay. They, I don't want to get the stats wrong on the spot, but you know, it's something like they store an amount of carbon that is equivalent to like 10 years worth of human emissions. Wow. Um, and there, there's a very large amount of biomass and a lot of it is right now locked up underneath the permafrost. Mm-hmm. So they, they fixed their carbon a long time ago. It got trapped under the permafrost and then the back, what little bacteria there are, are not only, um, trapped there with them, they're producing methane. Hmm. And so then permafrost melts and the methane comes out. And that's what we talked about with like runaway, yeah. uh, runaway warming, yeah. um, in some of the models. Um, that's way outside my expertise. It's just the, the like peat moss facts just end up is like (laughs) clearly sphagnum is the most important moss, um, from a global change and from a economic standpoint. Um, and then the worst thing you can probably do with peat moss is then burn it. Um, (laughs) and there is a large proportion of, of especially Northern Europe that actually still use peat moss as a fuel source. Um, and then, you know, the, the guilty pleasure then is to realize that, that, you know, your PD whiskeys are also being flavored by burning a source of, uh, of, yeah. So I toured some, uh, peatland restoration sites in Edmonton, Mm -hmm. um, the botany conference or like national big scientific conference was near there. It was really interesting. The Canadians are doing an okay job. They have, the companies have self-selected to, restore their own peatlands. And it's a really interesting way that they do this. Hmm. Uh, They have, you know, the the harvesting of peat involves these gigantic vacuum cleaners on trucks. Essentially they like drive over it uh, and collect the peat. And then it ends up in the bags um, that you see at at the uh, big box stores. It's that's dead. Hmm. Okay. Ish. I really, I really like the the word "dead ish." It's only mostly dead, right? There's a lot of debate sometimes at the border when we bring uh, plants in with a plant collecting permit, and they're like, "Is this soil or is this plant?" And we're like, "Yes?" Yeah. Question mark? <laughs> um, because it is possible that so it's just usually the top six to ten centimeters of of a peatland is living peat moss mm. and other plants that happen to grow on them. Uh, and beneath that is probably a region where you could regenerate peat moss into live plants. And that's the ish part. But then <laughs> below that is the true peat, which okay. is, you know, 
very, very slowly decomposing biomass. Sure. And uh, they need to get that top part off in order to get to the part that you use for gardening and fuel. Mm-hmm. And getting that top part off involves bulldozing the top layer. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and they usually do that in the winter because it's a little easier to scrape that off and throw it in a giant pile. And the restoration um, experts say that it is possible to regenerate five hectares for every one hectare of stuff that they collect. Um, And so that giant pile of like moss and plant, other plant material and snow, they leave it around for a while and then they can spread it onto another field to regenerate it. Hmm. I visited one of these about 20 years post um, it's not seeding and they don't, they don't make seeds. Right. Sure. Post broken moss material replanting. (laughs) Yeah. And, all of the species were there, but it w- looked weird. Huh. So we even found a rare species um, hmm. that, you know, it would be difficult to find in this area. So that, to me, suggests that the restoration was okay from a biodiversity standpoint. But the reason it looked weird is if anybody's ever gone out into a bog, you're walking up and down little tiny hills all the time. Mm-hmm. They're called hummocks. And different species of of sphagnum will actually make the hummocks versus live closer to the water table. This is back to that whole how the heck do different species coexist? Sure, right. Different reason why I think sphagnum is fascinating. Um, and that micro topography do, does not exist after only twenty years because there's no peat accumulation. Yeah. Yet, and so is peat a renewable resource? It is plant based but it might take like 10,000 years before there's a peatland there again. Yeah. Okay. So, so technically, mm, right. But probably closer to coal than it is to like a pine plantation or something. Yeah. Um, and the other aspect of that is we were told, so this is uh, Dr. Lynn Rochefort at uh, Laval in uh, Canada. That's kind of heads up all of this restoration um, she says that there are peatlands in the U.S., not sphagnum peatlands, but other peatlands that uh, have not been restored after being uh, harvested. They still look like the surface of the moon 100 years mm. later. The water table fluctuates up and down, and it's the peat moss that's actually keeping that a little bit more stable. Mm-hmm. And when you remove that, drain the, you have to drain the peatland of all of its, its – it's water. It's a wetland. Sure. Um, that really messes everything up. And yeah. so the, there is no restoration without intentional restoration, hmm. probably. And definitely going to take a long time to make it back to that area. It's really interesting. And, and, and you know, we, we do things sometimes as a species. Now, I, I mean, and by sometimes, I mean only con- almost constantly, right. almost constantly, right. without really knowing what we're doing. We just do things and we're like, okay, yeah, this is a great resource for x y and z and it's always interesting having to see the remediation side on the back end and in some ways you can't fault people for not knowing like what they don't know right you don't know right but now with the information we have it's like okay we can maybe find other like coconut core is the the husks of coconuts they shred it up it has a similar consistency consistency we're growing coconuts anyway right uh, you know, and that's a whole other yeah. I mean, that, conversation. that's <laughs> something that I'm actually interested in because I get I do get this question quite often about what should I do about peat, and um, at least until the last couple of years here in Lubbock, I really couldn't find 
peat free yeah. soil mixes. You can now, um, there's a couple of brands out there. Um, and, but I don't know yet, like, how's that going to deal with the like potted plants that we like to have in our yard? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be holding moisture the same way that, co- uh, the coconut is it yeah. gonna hold moisture the same way, um, that the peat moss does. So that's the part I don't know about. It's pretty interesting. And I've seen, I've seen a couple of studies and just have had some practical experience that it's not exactly the same, mm-hmm. but I think it's close enough. And and I and I say that with some hesitation because I'm sure I'll get a message about that. You know, saying, no, it doesn't. It's blah blah blah. Coconut's bad. Whatever. You know, there's always another issue. But again, we we do what we can and we make some small incremental changes. I think. And and if adding the husk of a coconut to your pot instead of something from a ten thousand year old peat bog right. is a net good, you know, for the environment, then okay. Maybe that's a thing we do. Maybe that's and and even if we have to change some of our horticultural practices to 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 adapt to this, you know, maybe we switch out plant A for a very closely related but tougher plant B, or that fills that same like horticultural niche. Um, maybe that's a thing we really need to evaluate and really need to think about. It's it's a complex issue for sure. Oh, for sure. And yeah, what you said about coconuts, I'm sure that there's some other reason why we may not want to be encouraging the <laughs> one-for-one replacement of right. moss with coconut core simply because we don't grow them in North America as yeah. much. And so, yeah. So it's, it's a big thing. But, you know, I think that we, I, I think an encouraging part of this is that you know, there are companies, there are groups doing large scale restoration yes. efforts. And that and was the point that was made to me, you know, and yes, it was, it w- we always have to encounter the biases of the people sure. who are talking to you. And so when someone who is a peat company manager is telling me like why it's okay that we're harvesting this non-renewable resource and they're saying, you know, well, we're only like 0.3% of the way through harvesting all of Canada's peatlands. So they're out there and two people are buying it. And so wouldn't you want to buy, buy it from a group that is doing at least something in a sustainable way versus we could just do nothing. Uh, Um, And it's like, I don't really, really respond to that like hostage (laughs) situation, but it's a point Stockholm syndrome, but with peat moss, right? Uh, <laughs> that's, a, you know, that's an interesting take too, because you, how much of it is marketing and, 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 and another thing that I think about a lot is, okay, you know, you see whatever trend is popular in the, in the, you know, public zeitgeist about, right. and all the companies jump on board. Right. Right. And it's really easy to be – for me, I, I end up being cynical about that a lot. Like, oh, they're just trying to you know ride this wave and maybe they are. But ultimately, if there is net good that comes from it, like right. you know, like you said, they could just be like, well, I don't care. I'm not doing anything. Right. And uh, it is – does in this particular case seem to be there's like the Canadian peat moss consortium or something of yeah. companies yeah. that are working with the Canadian government in this case. So that one's – a little different than some of these just more voluntary, you know, go with the flow kind of trends. Sure. Yeah. And that's really interesting. Um, I think it's a good place. We'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and I'm going to ask you to one, define a moss because that's something I realize we haven't done yet. It's like, what is a moss? Uh, and then two, we'll talk about the herbarium and, and sort of the rest of your role and everything else. Great. Well, hey there. Welcome to the mid roll. So glad to see you here again. How are you doing? How's your mom? 
You doing okay? Feeling better? I'm glad to hear that. Thanks so much to our sponsors, uh, Forest Proud. Forest Proud is a nonprofit organization focused on forest-based climate solutions. They link industry, research, the public, and everyone and anyone in between to talk about how trees make our climate better. Head over to forestproud.org for more information. And if you head to the shop at forestproud.org slash shop, use the promo code PLANTHROPOLOGY at checkout and grab some cool swag at a discount. Thanks also to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science for sponsoring this show and making sure that I can do it every week or every week-ish or whenever I happen to manage to get an episode out. Um, thanks to you for listening. I think it's cool that you're here. I'm glad you're here right now. Follow and connect with Planthropology all the places. I am on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter as Planthropology. That's anthropology with a PL slapped right there on the front. It's nonsense and it's a good word. Um, look for the green background with bristlecone pine, and that'll be me. I'm also on TikTok as at the plant prof, and I would love for you to check me out there. And you can find me and all that was left of my dignity. Yep, it's over there on the TikTok machine. Uh, lots of good stuff coming up on Planthropology through the summer. I'll be traveling a little bit and doing a few other things, so you may hear some throwback episodes or some other random stuff that might pop up and will also be very fun if you would like to support the show through all the traveling and randomness you can buy some swag at planthropologypod.com slash merch take you to my red bubble store and there's all kinds of cool stuff there you can head to buymeacoffee.com slash planthropology and for the price of a coffee you'll buy me a coffee those are all great ways to support the show you can also tell a friend which would be awesome if you love this show uh, post on twitter about it or on instagram or facebook or send up smoke signals whatever you want to do i don't care tell a friend about it that would be awesome also you can leave me a rating and review on apple or Podchaser. it takes just like 30 seconds i wear a size five star and kind words and it really means a lot to me and it really helps me out you can also go join the planthropology's cool plant people facebook group it is a group with cool plant people who listen to Planthropology. Uh, go check out the Podfix Network. Thanks to Podfix for letting me be a part of it. Um, go to podfixnetwork.com and you can find all kinds of goodies there. So yeah, let's talk about Moss some more. All right. Well, we are back and uh, I actually had, I don't take a lot of notes, but I had in my notes, ask him what Moss is and then I didn't do that. Uh, so what's a Moss? Yeah, so a moss is a plant that is uh, without vascular tissue, so no xylem, no phloem, none of these, uh, you know, 100-point Scrabble word things <laughs> that you learn in, in basic plant stuff, but they are not transporting their water from roots, because they don't have roots, uh, huh. through their stems, because they don't have stems, uh, to their leaves, because they don't have leaves. Um <laughs> Yeah, so they're very simple plants, I guess. So they, they do have a lot of simplicity. So the, the water is getting in. There are rhizoids, um, mm -hmm. which might have some homology uh, sort of similarity to root hairs in vascular plants, uh, kind of extensions of little cells. Their leaflets are one cell thick. Hmm. And, um, you know, when we talk about peat moss. There are actually two different like cell types. They'll have cells that hold water only, and there'll be cells that, uh, have the green stuff that do photosynthesis. So as, 
as land plants. Um, they, they're doing photosynthesis, they're uh, reproducing via spores, um, but they um, are able to do all of this without transporting water, um, f- you know, via traditional methods that a vascular plant would do. Hmm. So they, I, I, is that, and this is going to be a dumb question and I apologize in advance. I am not an evolutionary biologist. Is that why they're short? Yeah, that is why they're short. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and they're not all short. Um, so there's, uh, there's about a, a one meter, three foot tall moss in, oh, in, wow. um, in Australia and, um, peat mosses can actually be quite long. Although again, back to the whole, what is live and what is dead question, um, but, uh, peat mosses, especially to continue that trend are really special. They hold so much water and they actually can wick that water up their central axis. I don't want to say stem to not uh, <laughs> offend the vascular plant crowd. Sure. They don't have a stem, but there's a central axis and some of their, uh, leaves are wrapped around that and kind of wick water up and then they can store 30 times their weight in water, wow. um, in their leaves their cells. Um, and yeah. And so then a lot of them are short and small because they, um, they can't get out of the, uh, off, off the ground very much. Um, but, uh, they're still able to get around a lot, you know, growing along on plants, you know, or even what are called epiphilic mosses mm-hmm. that grow on the leaves of especially like broad tropical plants. Hmm. Um, and so they have a wide variety of habitats, um, that they've uh, they've adapted to um, in the after the presence of flowering plants sort of taking over the world, um, the mosses responded to that, and so they're despite being small and simple, I don't want to give you the impression that they're primitive or that okay. they're the you know, I kind of hate the term living fossil mm-hmm. because mosses and oak trees share a common ancestor four hundred million years ago or more but the Oak tree became a giant tree and has all this complicated, uh, physiology and, uh, morphology, but the same amount of time has passed yeah. to where our modern mosses are. And this is kind of a overall kind of trend in, in combating sort of popular thinking about evolution with how it's actually happening. Yeah. Um, that we shouldn't think about plants that are alive today as ancestors. They are today. Um, gotcha. they are, they're your cousins, not your great, 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 great grandparents. That's such an important point because one thing I have understood and we, we or not understood. That's not the word I, I meant. One, one thing I've sort of learned and discovered teaching. Um, and I, we, we talk very little about evolutionary biology. We mention it early on and talk about the history of plants and a little bit, not nearly as much as you, I'm sure you go into depth with. And, you know, again, my understanding is poor, I'm a dig a hole and put a plant in it guy. Um, but evolutionary biology is so poorly understood. And I think, like like you mentioned, we think that thing A existed and then thing A went away and thing B is here. Right. And it's not, it's, not, it's not really it. We, no, that's uh, what you, know, you think of the very classic illustration of the uh, monkey followed by the slightly standing up primate followed mm-hmm. by the chimpanzee looking thing followed by the human yeah. followed by the somebody crouching over the desk <laughs> recording <laughs> right podcasts but yeah in front of a microphone right, yeah yeah um but that's what we call kind of ladder like thinking it's mm. a way that of thinking of evolution as this replaces this and maybe the the way 
that the common phrases make their way out into the public, like survival of the fittest Mm -hmm. means that there are winners and there are losers. Ah. Yeah, there are winners and there are losers within each generation. And yes, sometimes the ultimate loss of a, of a whole group of organisms going extinct, but the ones that survive have the same past as the, not the same past, but they have this, a converging past Hmm. with other organisms that are alive today. And especially when, when you get into what I study uh, at the genome level, at the genetic level, there's plenty of change. Uh, the mosses are uh, accumulating lots and lots of changes mm-hmm. that are separate and independent of the ones that developed in a, in a flowering plant uh, over the same time period. Hmm. Like maybe they didn't generate acorns, but, and they, they're not 50 feet tall, Sure, right. but they're still processing carbon and turning it into sugar. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that reflects that shared history. And I guess it's just that the, selection pressure in whichever niche in which they exist didn't push them up you know it Mm -hmm. pushed them maybe with into more internal changes rather than large-scale morphological changes i think it's interesting yeah one of the most fascinating things about recent evolutionary biology and i guess you kind of split up evolutionary biology into different time scales Mm -hmm. there's the yeah survival of the fittest like competition for resources and and offspring within a, within a group of organisms. Yeah. But then the deeper time questions, one of the really cool patterns that's happened in plants is the rise of the flowering plants, Mm -hmm. the angiosperms created niches that didn't exist before. There's a closed canopy. There's, um, you know, new niches in the understory. Mm -hmm. There's broad leaved plants that didn't really exist as much um, when the ferns and, and other, other things were the dominant mm-hmm. tree-like things. Um, but what we find in at least two of the major groups of bryophytes, that's the mosses and the uh, other groups that need a little bit more PR um, because they're <laughs> called liverwort and hornwort. Don't, yeah. you know, they get a bad rap because of the branding, bad of the branding. Um, but Two of those groups actually expanded their species count after flowering plants. Hmm. And so did the ferns. And so um, this is a um, theory called the uh, the shadow of the angiosperms theory. And in the shadow of the angiosperms, there's low light conditions, which actually means that there's different wavelengths of light that are available for mm-hmm. the plants in the understory. And that caused genetic and genomic changes that within groups of mosses and ferns and liverworts, certain groups adapted and survived and thrived and expanded their number of species. And um, so to kind of think about a moss as this primitive organism that hasn't changed since the dawn of land plants is kind of forgetting about that aspect that lots of things can happen, even if it's, there's not always this, progression towards complexity sure which is another you know common misconception of evolution i think that's fascinating it's so fascinating i'm gonna have to have you back sometime just to talk about just evolutionary <laughs> biology because there's so much to discuss and it you know again as someone who understands the basics of it but maybe not some of the intricacies it is just mind-blowing every time i learn more about it right um but that actually kind of leads us into that discussion kind of leads us into uh talking about one what a herbarium is mm-hmm. 
and the purposes of it because well go well let's take that one at a time so tell us like what you do as the director of this herbarium what is a herbarium and and what do y'all try to accomplish yeah a herbarium is a museum for dried pressed plant specimens um it's not all pressed because usually moss specimens are not pressed but vascular plants like flowering plants um just like between pages of a heavy book like you might do Mm -hmm. when you're a kid um, but we do this between layers of cardboard and, and newspaper, pressing them really flat, tying them down really tight, and then just letting them dry um, really preserves them um, really beautifully in some cases. Decades later, you're still seeing flower uh, Corolla color, mm-hmm. um, and you can see all these really interesting details. That's um, kind of wild that they don't have a soup, they don't degrade and they don't get super moldy yeah. if you do it this way. Yeah. Um, and so a herbarium can be a record of the botanical diversity. Um, and you can use that to, um, see what plants were in a particular time and a particular place because somebody collected those plants and made a label that says, Hey, I collected this species at this place and this time. <laughs> no, that's that's interesting, and, and like, I, I and I think it's interesting, like, to see it in person mm-hmm. because I don't know, <laughs> like, I don't know if if I didn't know what I expected, sure, right? But like going up there, it's like really like feels like very secure cabinets full of samples and like folders. Right. And I don't know what I expected, but like you pulled stuff out, and it's like a Manila folder with like plants in it. Right. Yeah. So it is. Um Usually a, a plant is collected, the primary reason for taxonomy, back to the what is a species thing. So from a taxonomy standpoint, when someone describes a species, they need to identify one of those collections as typical of that species. So yeah. that's why it's called a type huh. specimen. Okay, Those are pretty special. Um, we try not to have them in our herbarium because our... <laughs> Our um, our fire suppression could be better. Oh. Um, some some of the some of the really fancy herbaria. There are ones that uh, have millions of collections. Um, there's one at the Royal Botanical Garden in Kew, mm-hmm. London, where they have a whole building of of type specimens, and you have to sign a waiver to get in because they have an argon gas uh, fire suppression system. They care more about the dead plants than they care about humans uh, in the case of fire. That's funny. And so you got to get out of there. There's a priceless, priceless collections that, that, that have been made. And so they're a record of this. Uh, I think that this is a new species and this is typical of that species. So I'm going to designate this, this one. And then the rest of the specimens of that species can be used as a record of variability. They can be used as a record of where and when these species occurred. Mm -hmm. So when we turn that uh, information into digital data, now you can download a map that's like anybody who's ever collected um, Budalua gracilis blue grandma. Yeah. Uh, And so you can just go online and do that right now. And that's because a lot of agencies have funded the digitization of this, these collections so that they're not just locked up in these cabinets. Yeah. Well, and I think that that leads to the question sometimes and with everything being digital, everything's digital, right? Right. Like you do, everything's on the internet. Like for you personally, what, what do you think are the main benefits of still keeping physical once living samples of things? Because they still contain information. Okay. Um, the, Closest thing to my research is that they still contain DNA. Okay. Um, we know we've heard maybe many people have heard about um, 
uh, ancient DNA, mm-hmm. get DNA out of mastodon bones and, and Neanderthals and things like this. Um, we don't really call it that because it's not quite ancient. Maybe antique DNA mm-hmm. is, is a term I've used. And so 60 to 100, even 200-year-old herbarium specimens can be sampled, grind up the tissue and extract DNA, and we can understand something about their genetics and and how they relate to other individuals of the species um, without having to go out and collect a new sample. Hmm. Um, they also contain records of what their physiology was like when they were alive. So stomata, which are the holes in the leaves mm-hmm. uh, for gas exchange. Um, you can make an impression of a herbarium specimen, look at how dense their stomata are packed, hmm. which is a plant's response to the CO2 and water around it. Um, the effort at photosynthesis it was doing, you can measure that by like getting a chemical analysis of the plant. Wow. And so that's, that's just new research stuff, but it also matters for old, old research and going back. Hmm. You know, I was part of a study where we looked at the ecology of a, of a bunch of species of Piedmonts, of course. Yeah. But, um, a lot of those samples were marked as a particular species identification and someone else came along and did this whole species as a hypothesis. We're actually going to split this into two species, but nobody had kept this plants. And so we can't hmm. go back and we can't say like, oh, this part of the distribution of the ecology was this new species and the old species had this distribution instead. And so you need that record for when the species hypothesis changes so that you can go back and check. That's such a it's so fascinating. And, and you know, we talk about the ecological and biological history of our planet. Hmm. And and it's so important, I think, because nothing exists in a vacuum, right? On this planet, everything has an effect on everything else. We all exert pressure on everything else around us, the mm-hmm. environment, uh, different species, all of this. And and when we talk about history a lot of times, I think it's it, it's hard because in human history, with our recorded history, it's so grainy to for lack of a better term right like history is written by the victors and there's like bias put into it but when we talk about ecological history we can literally take these old samples and like science them mm-hmm. there's technical right <laughs> very 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 fancy technical terms here and, and get like empirical data about what the world looked like and That's and it. i, I explained yeah. this to, sorry i didn't mean to yeah. cut you off but i explained this to my students that like when we talk about oh, the, the world was like this 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, et cetera. We're not just like throwing darts mm-hmm. to see what sticks. Like we don't have just like a wheel of words about the past. Like we, we use empiricism to right. get at this. Right, right. Yeah, uh, no, I think those are uh, really important records that stay around with herbarium specimens, sometimes better than museum specimens because mm-hmm. we're not – you know, pickling things in, in <laughs> nasty chemicals. Right. You know, they're actually really, really good preservations. But I really, I, I know I wanted to make a point that was related to what you said about humans. Um, and I think a herbarium is also a really great way for we as scientists and especially students to interact with this, um, this realization science is done by humans. Uh-huh. And so, we can use the herbarium as a, as a way in think about, you know, ask a question. Here's a species occurs all over the great plains, Southern Texas. What's the oldest specimen you can find in Lubbock, Texas. And they're like 1910. Mm-hmm. It was like, does that mean that this species d- was not in Lubbock before mm. 1910? 
And some of them are like, oh, that must be when it was distributed here. It's like, or it might be that the people that have been living here for 10,000 years or more, that wasn't what they were into. And yeah. so they didn't collect plants or, or work with plants the same way that we do. Um, the, you know, and, and so this colonial aspect, yeah. you know, as, as settlers are making their way up to the high plains after the civil war, that is when we change the landscape. And it's also when we change how we record the landscape. And so wow. the data itself is by its own nature has to be collected by humans and humans are not perfect. Yeah. And so not just that there are mistakes, but the, there are biases and there are value systems that are different among different cultures. That's such an interesting way to think about it. And I, but you're, I mean, absolutely right. Like we, again, same thing, nothing exists in a vacuum. We Mm -hmm. all exert pressure on our record keeping on everything else. Right. uh, You know, so social evolution is a whole other thing as well, but the concepts maybe you're not that we evolve as society we evolve and change in different areas in different ways and and i think it's an important thing to look back on too where it's really easy to look at past specimens and call them primitive sure when it's not that it's just that they were interacting with their environment in a specific way Mm -hmm. and the environment changes over time i think that's really fascinating right right um so as your as your role I want to talk a little bit about like actually what you do in the herbarium, right? Sure. Uh, because director of the herbarium sounds like a cool title, but <laughs> at least to me as a plant nerd, I think that's a pretty cool title. Right. Like, what does that involve? What What is your day to day like? I think that the director title is probably because we're not a super big herbarium. You know, thirty thousand does sound impressive, not compared to London and Paris and New mm-hmm. York and and even Missouri Botanical Garden in the U.S has a million or more specimens and um, it's that each of those herbaria then might have taxon specific curators, the Mm -hmm. curator of ferns, the curator of mosses, the curator of fungi. And we don't really have enough (coughs) yet to support all of that. Sure. Um, And so as director, it's my responsibility to um, help with the curation activities. And luckily since I've been here, the, uh, my department has been very responsive in helping us increase resources for things like undergraduates to do some of the curation, uh, bringing in new specimens. You know, some people would collect the, the specimens and they're really nicely pressed and they've got labels on them, but we've got to get them onto the nice acid-free cotton rag mm-hmm. paper that's going to last a really long time. And so get a really have a, a, a really great experience bringing undergraduates into the herbarium and they're doing arts and crafts. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, they're, they're gluing plants to paper, <laughs> but they're around a thing that is involved in research. And so I view it as a, as a low learning curve way of getting undergraduates involved. Hmm. And a lot of them have then progressed on to doing research. Um, and then uh, I sometimes uh, process loan requests um, which is the old way, mostly that people would know that we had anything is that they'd be like, Hey, you got any of this? It's kind of like <laughs> go fish yeah, but for plants, for, for yeah. old plants. I like right. that. Um, and so we've got a lot of those, um, still processing. And, um, then the major thing that's going on is this digitizing that mm-hmm. I mentioned We're t- we're three parts to digitizing, taking a picture, high res image that lives online along with the transcribed label information. And then that label information can go along and, and uh, talk about making maps of species distributions. Um, 
nobody's got GPS before 2003. Mm -hmm. And so people use dead reckoning, you know, or, um, the kind of like, uh, you go down to the the local shop and you turn left and go to 0.3 miles down the road. That's right. what's on the label. Right. But we actually have a fair, a fair number of uh, map nerd uh, undergrads. I was one of them at one time <laughs> that will be like, I can turn that into a GPS coordinate and like yeah. plop it down on a map. And then, then we've got a lot of great information about that. Um, and so that has been the, the curation and director side. Mm-hmm. And then also involved with, with outreach and in reach, um, you know, being on the seventh floor of a building whose elevators only go up to six. <laughs> I, I did notice that when right. I came to visit. Yeah. Right. Um, and so you know, getting people in there, knowing what the resource is, how it can be used for getting people into research and then actually as a plant resource um, and uh, connecting to the community. So we were at this this fun event a couple of weeks ago in town called ranch day mm-hmm. um, where we had kids making herbarium specimens, uh, you know, out of uh, plants that we had pressed ahead of time. So that's, that's cool. Kind of all of those research teaching and service as the three main like wings that you hear about as a faculty member. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And you, you teach quite a bit. I mean, you've got a lot of students, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I teach, um, this, the, the non-majors class that yeah. I mentioned, um, and then a couple of other classes, but usually only about one per semester, oh, Okay, which is good. Um, but yeah, I, I had a fir- first class that was taught in the herbarium as a field botany and natural, uh, history collections class in the fall last semester. Cool. And that was full with a wait list. Um, and so I'm very excited about, um, you know, the future of the herbarium being something that gets students interested in plants, um, which can be a struggle, but <laughs> once they're in there and they're like, wow, this is cool. Or they get interested in the history. Like who is this person going around collecting plants yeah. 50, 70 years ago um, and, and using these collections? Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. And, and, you know, something I think we talked about when you gave me a tour up there was the that challenge you mentioned of getting students who are non-majors who don't know that they care yet. Mm-hmm. We, they've, they've not been convinced that they care yet, uh, that they should care about plants and the environment. And, you know, it, it touches on some of these bigger issues of how do we make climate change and ecological management and something that people give a crap about for right. lack of a better right. way to put right. it. Right. And, and I guess just doing our little educational part and talking about the history of of our natural history is, right. is one link in that chain. Yeah. I mean, uh, kind of bring it all the way down to what I asked kids at the ranch day event is, you know, this is an event where they've got the meat science department talking about different cuts of meat mm-hmm. and, you know, branding cows and, you know, what life was like on a ranch, you know, a hundred to 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then, so they're doing all that and the adorable, uh, uh, cowboy tiny cowboy hat overload um (laughs) but then a kid comes up and he's looking at a herbarium specimen from before his grandparents were born yeah and i i asked the kid like why does a rancher need to know about plants and it takes him a while and um, i was like well what what do we normally have on a ranch and then they're immediately like cows yeah well what do cows eat (laughs) like grass and a point yeah. like here, that is a grass specimen from 1967. Yeah. And that is a grass. So a rancher needs to know what that grass is. And so the, this idea that we can be 
<clears throat> uh, plant unaware yeah. is is kind of not a great uh, position for for people to be in for true global health yeah. uh, ideas. And and I do see this among the undergraduates that they once they get into it a little bit, they're realizing that like yes. Um, this is important and this is what I am motivated to do. You know, uh, I think Gen Z gets a lot of crap sometimes, <laughs> but one thing that they shouldn't get crap for is their uh, caring about the environment, which yeah. is, which is only increased since our generation and earlier. I, yeah, I agree for sure. Uh, there, there's some weird TikTok trends out there, but <laughs> at the same time, no, I totally agree. Like I see, uh, in my own students, and it's not everyone, and it's not ever going to be everyone, but mm. like a, a real passion to learn about even just little bits of this. Like if there's one or two things they can sort of like latch onto that, oh, you know, I care about this. This is cool. I can, right. you know, grow my own whatever. Or I can, I, I don't know. It's yeah. that kind of, um, uh, I don't know, how do I say this? That kind of getting to see that little bit of discovery and that epiphany that, yes. oh, this stuff matters is one of the things that keeps me coming back to keep doing this. Right. Yeah. Like absolutely. it's nice that they pay me, but I also like to, uh, I like to getting to experience that. Yep. Yep. And you see that for, you know, see that in discovery from students for the first time and, and that they can learn something about the world they didn't know before. Um, yeah. My non-majors class, Yes, we have learning objectives in the in the true way that you're supposed to set up curriculum, and that's great. My personal objectives in in the non majors botany classes is, uh, I want you to care about plants. Yeah, and I want you to know what the scientific method really does. Yeah, uh, and not how it's taught in high school. And so if we put those two things together into, you know, learning about the scientific method, learning about evolution, learning about, um, you know, like you said before, uh, you know, we're not just throwing darts. We actually did empirical stuff to figure this out. And here is how, here was how we did that mm -hmm. and give students the tools to think about that in their, everything else that they're doing. And maybe they go back to their range science uh, you know, major and they never look at a plant again, but they've at least, you know, leveled up in scientific understanding. Sure. So that's another really important goal for me. For sure. Uh, yeah. And it's really important from a global and societal standpoint yes. too, for sure. Um, wow. Okay. So before I just looked at the time and this, it's <laughs> gone quick, uh, before we kind of start wrapping up, is there anything we missed? Was there anything else you wanted to make sure we got in here today? Um, we can do a quick lightning round of things that are not moss. Oh yes. That sounds great. Um, uh, ranger moss, not, not a moss. moss. Okay. It's a lichen. It's actually maybe even cooler than moss in some ways because <laughs> it's a symbiosis between a, a fungi and a, and an algae, um, that kind of looks superficially like moss. Huh? Um, there's, uh, there's a group of marine organisms called bryozoans. Those are moss animals mm -hmm. is how that actually breaks down. Hmm. So they're not moss either. <laughs> Um, Spanish moss is of course my favorite because it is neither Spanish nor moss. <laughs> Plants do need much better PR. Don't they? <laughs> yeah. You can find, you can find the Spanish moss in the family with, with bromeliads, pineapples. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there's, there's lots of things like that where, you know, superficially you've got this simple looking structure, but it, you know, it could mislead. And so, yeah. And then a lot of times you'll see, yeah. I've got moss on my roof. Can I, how can I get rid of it? Well, that's probably algae. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and unless you're in the Pacific Northwest. So, uh, yeah. So that, that's, uh, something I always like to, to cover is what isn't moss. 
I, yeah, no, that's really, <laughs> and I wish we had time to really get into lichen because lichens are so weird. Lichens are awesome. We probably should have somebody else on for that. <laughs> there are definite experts on that, that, that would, uh, would tell you all kinds of great things. I need to track down a lichen scientist, lichenologist. Lichenologist. Yeah. It's funny that the, one of the societies I belong to is American Bryological and Lichenological Society, which is a is a weird pairing now, now that we know that fungi are more closely related to animals than they are to yeah. plants. Um, but from a traditional standpoint of just like small plants and plant-like things that mm-hmm. don't move. And grow uh, rocks, yeah. Right, you put, put them together. But, you know, the lichenologists have a lot of very interesting things. If you get a lichenologist on here, you know, if they're really a lichenologist, they'll have a little bottle of potassium hydroxide with them at all times. Uh, is that, that's, that's is actually, that their tell? That actually, yes, it is. It's actually something that they use to distinguish species of, of lichens. So that's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I need to take some notes on <laughs> find a lichenologist. Absolutely. So cool. Okay. I don't even know where to start looking for one of those, but I'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Twitter's an amazing thing. I Absolutely. can probably just ask for one. Um, okay, Matt, that was really awesome. That was really I, I've my my brain's kind of buzzing. If you can't tell, there's so <laughs> many other questions I want to ask you, but we'll maybe save that for for another time. Mm-hmm. Um, the question I always ask all my guests at the end um, is if you could send something home with our listeners, a uh, piece of advice could be. Academic life advice, something moss related, <laughs> whatever you want. What would that mm. thing be? I was thinking about this because, you know, I, I listened to a bunch of your episodes on a recent road trip and <laughs> like wrote that down like he's going to ask. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say stay curious. Um, you know, I think a lot of people will tell scientists you have to be skeptical. Skeptical is mm. good. Skeptical helps us not accept the easy answer to what our data is telling us. That's great. Skepticism can sometimes lead to cynicism, which can go mm. down to a dark place sometimes. But there's something special about being curious. You have to admit that you don't know something. Hmm. And that's humbling and scary, but it's okay. I want to communicate that. It's okay to be curious. And when I learn something that I didn't know before, that's like one of the best human experiences. Yeah. And so stay curious. It's awesome. It's awesome. Um, wow, man, like I said, an hour goes quick. Uh, but wh- where can we find you? Do you, do you want to be found on the internet? Oh, oh sure. Yeah. And I'm not on as quite as many social media platforms as you are. Well, but, Cause you're smarter uh, than me. That's why. Um, and I don't understand some of them as well <laughs> as another reason, but uh, on Twitter at Moss matters, um, which is a triple pun on either being <laughs> matters pertaining to mosses or uh, that moss matters, or also that my name is Matt. Um, my wife, my wife came up that with one. that's yeah. really clever. My okay. wife came up with that, and so um, she's very proud. Uh, uh, she that. should be. That's yeah, awesome. It's amazing. <laughs> um, so at moss matters and uh, mossmatters.com is my my professional website as well. Okay, so. very cool. Well, man, I appreciate you uh, coming out here to the greenhouse and talking with me and and all that. And um, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. And uh, to all of you listening, I hope you have a deeper appreciation for moss and uh, the things that are not moss. And I hope that you stay curious, too, and that you keep being cool to each other. So uh, take care. We'll talk to you next week. And uh, I hope you'll have a great day. Y'all, I don't know if you realize this, but so many of my guests have 
suggested that we all stay curious as their advice at the end of the episode. And I think that's really meaningful. And I think we should really take something away from that. And I really love Matt's advice about guarding ourselves against cynicism and how uh, while we should be skeptical to a certain extent, gosh, the sense of wonder is such an amazing thing. Thanks so much, Matt, for coming on and being a part of this. You were a pleasure to talk to. I hope we can do this again. Thanks most of all to you, the listener, for being a part of this as well. You know that I do this for you, and it means the absolute world to me that you listen and that you follow along and you interact on social media and all of that. Thanks to our sponsors again, uh, Forest Proud and the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science. The show was recorded, produced, edited, all the things by yours truly. Thanks for listening. Um, We've got more great plant stuff coming up, more botanists on the way, and a couple of other really fun guests that I don't want to ruin the surprise about. So thanks for listening. Y'all keep being really cool plant people. Keep being kind to one another. And if you have not been kind to one another so far, hey, maybe give that a try. Uh, You know I love you. Take care, and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.